live in a time where those who want a world that is governed using the guidance of the Word of God could easily become increasingly discouraged and lose hope in that possibility. But is this all we should base our hope in the future on? Welcome to A Walk in the Word, where we bring you the Sunday sermons from Providence Baptist Church Gaston's worship services. In this week's sermon, Pastor John Friedrich uses the words of Peter to demonstrate for us where we should be placing our hope. Let's join in as Pastor Friedrich preaches a message entitled, Our Hope is Alive, from 1 Peter chapter 1. All right, well, it is good to be around God's Word this morning with everybody uh, to see what He has to say to us and uh, to speak to our hearts. So if you would turn with me in your Bibles to the book of 1 Peter. 1 Peter chapter 1 is where we're going to be this morning. I'll give everybody just a moment to get there. All right, 1 Peter 1, we're going to be reading verses 3 through 9. 3 through 9. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, which according to his abundant mercy hath begotten us again into a lively hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled, and that fadeth not away, reserved in heaven for you, who are kept by the power of God through faith unto salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time, wherein you greatly rejoice, though now for a season, if need be, ye are in heaviness through manifold temptations, that the trial of your faith, being much more precious than of gold that perisheth, though it be tried with fire, might be found unto praise and honor and glory at the appearing of Jesus Christ, whom having not seen, ye love, in whom, though now see, you see him not, yet believing, you rejoice with joy, unspeakable and full of glory, receiving the end of your faith, even unto the salvation of your souls. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this time to once again gather together around your word. Lord, we thank you for your word and the truths that it holds for us. It's truly a blessing to be able to have a piece of you with us that we can dive into and to have you reveal yourself to us, Lord. And Lord, now as we go forward to examine your truth, we just ask that you open our hearts and minds to that, that we might see what you have us to see this morning, that we might take what, that which you, we, you reveal to us and let us carry it with us, even as we leave here today, as we go back into our lives and begin our week, let us carry the words that we hear today deep within our hearts, that we might live lives that are glorifying to you. And Lord, I know I'm not worthy to be the one to stand here today. I just ask that you take anything away that can in any way interfere with the message. Pride, distraction, whatever, selfishness, whatever it might be, Lord, just take it away. Empty me, make me your vessel, fill me with your spirit that the words that I speak might be of your doing. And Lord, as a church, as we continue to make decisions and move forward, let us always be looking to you for our answers. Let us always be looking to you for to be our guide, that we might not step outside of your will in any decision that we make. And Lord, help us to become a beacon of hope to the community. Help us to always be looking to be your hands and feet and your heart 
And Lord, as individuals, open up opportunities. Let us open up our eyes to the chance to share your gospel with those around us in this dark and dying world that we live in. And Lord, forgive us of our sins and the times that we've chosen our own path. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> All right, when you look at the news uh, today, there are a lot of things, a lot of reasons for us to get discouraged. And it is not hard for us to take a look at headlines and say, this just is not a good situation for us to be in. Everything's going darker. It's getting darker and darker by the day. Everything is continuing to go more and more against the Word of God, more and more against Christian uh, ideals, Christian living, living our faith. And quite frankly, it is easy to take a look at all of this and to lose hope. This morning, though, I want to take a look at what it is as a Christian. Let's take a deep dive into what it is as a Christian that we have to hope for. It's easy, like I said, for us to look at what's going on in the world and for us to, to get discouraged. But in reality, we as Christians have a tremendous, tremendous amount to be hopeful about. And that hope is one that we can carry with us and live day to day to day. To begin with, I want to, to once again review, and I know I've, I've kind of harped on this before in the past, but I want to kind of reinforce what we mean when we're talking about hope. When I refer to the word hope, I'm referring to the biblical word hope. Not the worldly hope, but the biblical world, word hope, which comes from the Greek word elpis. And that is a, a hope, and it's not like the hope of the world where they cling to something that is uncertain or fleeting. It's not something that they can't really have confidence in because they have no control or confidence in. Our hope, our eternal hope, that begins in this life and transitions into the next, is based on that which is sure and absolute. And we'll get more into that later. You know, sometimes we talk to people and, uh, you know, you say, and they try to, to open up their hearts to be receptive to, to salvation. You say, do you think you'll end up in heaven after you die? A lot of times that's a question I use and kind of takes it to a, a position where you get them to think about the afterlife. And what is a, an answer that I typically hear is, well, I hope so. I hope so. Can you imagine living your entire life uncertain? Uncertain not just of what is going on in this life and what can happen in this life, but uncertain to even what is going to happen in the life beyond this. Uncertain as to your eternal destiny. That's a pretty dangerous hope. They're banking their eternal destiny on maybe a positive outlook, a positive thought of trying to be a good person. But our hope, our hope is different. 
You see, our hope is a forward-looking anticipation. It's a taking what we know to be true and looking out into the future and looking forward to the realization of that hope in a joyful expectation, or even a joyful manner. Because our hope is born out of a promise of God that has already been delivered, in fact. Our hope has already been delivered. We just haven't been to the point where we realize the fullness of that hope. And for those who grab hold of that, we know that it is an absolute certainty. And we look to the day that we can embrace it in its completeness, in its fullness. Before we dive too deep into this, I want to take a note of some of the language that Peter had used in his, in his letter here. And it's kind of key because it kind of sets the stage for a lot of things. Um, the passage we read begins with the word blessed. Now, I know we toss that word around a lot. We use it. We sing about it. And uh, we use the term frequently. And we sometimes say, talk about the Lord being blessed. But when you hear that expression, doesn't that initially kind of sound a little out of place? A little odd? I mean, how can we bless God or hope for blessings from God, the very author and source of blessings himself. After all, all blessings come from him. So does that mean he should bless himself? How do we understand the language there? Well, to answer this question, we've got to dig down into the Greek once again. And look at the meanings behind the Greek words that were used. The word blessed, which is used here, is different from the one that we so often see used in the scriptures. Um, and but like, you know, remember on the Sermon of the Mount how Jesus went on and on saying, blessed is he who this and blessed is he who that. It is actually a different word that is used here by Peter. The Greek word here, when it says, bless the Lord, is actually a word that means to praise. So in the New Testament, this word is never used in reference to man. It is only used in the context when we are referring to God. So effectively, Peter begins a passage, this passage we read this morning with, Praise God! And he's speaking excitedly. He starts it off right off the get-go with, Praise God! I like the way that starts. I don't know about you. Praise God, and then he speaks about what? The hope that we can have. Only through Him. And as Peter reflected back on the work of his beloved Savior, the one in whom he placed all his hope, he rejoiced as he considered what all of this meant. His excitement is similar to what we saw with Peter after having seen his friend and Lord who was crucified, only to find him alive and well at a later time. It's because of this very resurrection, a resurrection that he was so excited about then, that he has the same excitement and full confidence and belief in our living hope, so to speak, because of the source of our hope. The source of our hope is alive and is secured for all eternity. Our hope is alive, folks. And just as hope was reborn in Peter's heart when he once again saw the resurrected Christ, we can carry that very same hope in our lives as well. All right, so 
that's kind of the background behind it. What all does this a lively hope, a hope that is alive, encompass? Well, I want to look at three particular aspects of it this morning, very quickly. And the first thing that Peter touches on is what he refers to as an inheritance incorruptible. An inheritance incorruptible. What does he mean by that? Where exactly is he going? Well, what he is saying is that the inheritance that awaits us is indestructible. It cannot be done away with. It cannot be taken away. It cannot be corrupted in any way, defiled in any way. It is totally incorruptible. The same can't be said for anything that this world has to offer. In fact, far from it. Let's say you have a, a, a rich father, a rich grandfather with billions of dollars of stock. That's an inheritance he wants to give you. But what if the stock market crashes the moment you get those stocks and you're left with nothing? A vault full of cash can be stolen, can burn up in a fire. That's all material-based. That's all worldly. That's all the stuff that this world has to offer as an inheritance that can be so easily done away with, that can be so easily corrupted or defiled. But let's think of it from a more spiritual standpoint. Let's think about it from a standpoint of those that we spoke of before. Those who hope in their chances of heaven. See, they're basing their hope on the good works of the life that they live. But they can have an infinite number of good works to their name. They can have good work after good work after good work and still not make it into heaven because of one offense to God. You know, sometimes we look at it as a balance. We think, well, if my good works are better or more good works than I have bad things, then surely God will look at it and tip the scales and say, well, you are more good than bad, so I'll let you into heaven. We're kind of missing the whole point of what sin is here then. Because we need to understand something entirely. Good works do not even enter into whether or not you get into heaven. It is not even a consideration that God has. Our entrance into heaven is based entirely upon whether or not we kept God's law. Whether we did exactly, and I mean exactly, as God has told us to. So it doesn't matter how much good. The question is, did you obey? Were you obedient to God's law? The law is called a school teacher. In scripture. The law is there to reveal to us that none of us is capable of doing that. Not a single one of us is capable of keeping God's law. There was one person who walked this earth that kept the law, and that was Jesus himself. But the rest of us fail miserably. We can't keep the law for a single day let alone our entire life. So we fail miserably. We fall short, as the word sin means, of the goal, and that is to keep the law. 
So good works don't even enter into the equation. It's did you keep the law? And of course, the answer for every single human being is no, we did not. And that is the consideration that we have to face with on whether or not we are allowed entrance into heaven. Even one simple, seemingly innocuous sin has the power to keep us out of heaven. Because the Bible says the wages of sin are death or eternal separation from God. But when we base our inheritance on the work of Jesus Christ, when we base our inheritance on the fact that Jesus Christ has paid the penalty for our inability to maintain the law, it can't be undone. You see, remember I said our hope has already been done, it's already there? And that is the work of Jesus Christ. Our hope is already there, folks. It, the work has been complete. It is done. There's nothing we can add to it. And when we base our inheritance, when we base our future on the fact that Jesus Christ has already dealt with our sin through our faith in what His work and belief in Him and His resurrection, then we have a secure inheritance that can't be touched. And then Peter uses the term undefiled, meaning our inheritance wasn't obtained illegal. That's what that word actually means. When he says undefiled, it doesn't just mean tainted. That means it wasn't obtained in any illegal or illicit manner. It was purchased legitimately and was secured forever when Christ offered his precious blood on the altar of God. Hebrews 9.12 says, Neither by the blood of goats and calves, but by his own blood. His own blood. He entered in once into the holy place, having obtained eternal redemption for us. You notice the emphasis there? He entered once. He only had to do this one time, folks. Back in the old Jewish uh, law, they had to go back time after time after time and offer atonement for sin. Jesus does it one time, and that is it. One time, and that is enough. It's done, it's complete, it's over with. When you look at that verse, what a picture that paints. Can you envision the high priest in the day as they entered into the holy place, or holy of holies, and they poured the blood of the sacrifice out on the mercy seat? It must have been quite a thing to behold, because very few people got to actually see that. It was only the high priest that was allowed in there to do that. But now, imagine the holy of holies is in heaven. The altar is the altar of God. The mercy seat is that of God himself, and the blood being offered is the blood of the very person who is offering it, the very Son of God. What an incredible picture. But it is because of those very things, it is because Jesus was the one behind it, that made it legitimate. Only he... Only Jesus could have accomplished such a thing. By no other measure, by no other means, our inheritance was obtained. And thus it is legal, undefiled, and acceptable to God himself. And then Peter says it will not fade and is reserved for us in heaven. The word reserved here means guarded. We think reserved, we think reservation. Oh, i got a reservation at the restaurant. What does that mean? That means they're holding a seat for us, right? In this respect, it means it is guarded. Our inheritance is 
guarded by God Himself. The very power of God has secured, and it by no means will He relent under any circumstance. And you can't get more secure than that. And that takes us to the second point. That is that it is, our hope is kept by the power of God. You see, and the next thing that Peter leads into is when he describes it as being kept by the power of God through our faith. This echoes the truth we find in the book of John. If you look in John chapter 1, in verses 28 through 29, it says, And I give unto them eternal life, and they shall never perish. Neither shall any man pluck them out of my hand. My Father which gave them to me is greater than all, and no man is able to pluck them out of my Father's hand. You could call this double security. Security of Jesus, security of God the Father. But you know what? It gets even better than that. We are secure in that power. But then let's throw in verse, uh, a verse of Ephesians here, 4.30. And grieve not the Holy Spirit, whereby what? Ye are sealed into the day of redemption. So actually when you think about it, it's not double security, it's triple security. <laughs> Jesus Christ, God the Father, Holy Spirit. Who's going to touch that? What power in all of creation could possibly even be a threat to that? So the Bible teaches us that every part of the Trinity acts to secure us and keep us by their power. But then consider this part as well. We know that God is keeping this inheritance for us, but it tells us that He is keeping for us... He's keeping us for the inheritance. He's keeping the inheritance for us, and he's keeping us for the inheritance. And then Peter adds yet another element that we must consider. He says faith, through faith, our faith. Note that he speaks of us being kept by the power of God through faith. So what exactly does he mean by that? What is he, where's he getting that? You might think initially from reading that it's simply that our faith in the truth of our security in Him adds to the whole mix. Like, our faith has some peace in all of this security that we're talking about. Like it's enhancing it in some way. But that's really looking at it backwards. Our faith in this instance is a belief and understanding that we are utterly helpless to add anything to that. Our faith is entirely in the power of God to maintain our hope. We can't add to it, take away from it in any way. It is putting absolute and complete trust in the one who does have the capability of securing it for us. And how do we establish that trust? By emptying ourselves of any thinking or feeling of self-sufficiency in this. Knowing we add absolutely nothing to the equation at all. I can't stress that enough. At all either at the moment of our salvation or during the time between its inception and its realization. This goes back to what we mentioned before, the fact that the work has already been done and that makes it our living hope. No one can go back and change what Jesus has done. You can't undo the work of the cross. Nothing more needs to be done. You can't add to the work of the cross. His resurrection sealed the promise. It sealed our hope. Gave our hope 
life. But Christ's resurrection spells hope for us, not just because he lives, but because by God's mercy, we live. We are no longer condemned to spiritual death. When we talk about being born again, it brings to mind the change that God works within us. I speak all the time about, you can tell so often the validity, the genuineness of somebody's salvation by the change you see working in them. And not because they decide they're going to be a better person, not because they decide that they're going to start following the rules, but because God has done a work inside them. He has changed them from the inside out, not from the outside in. We are moved from the spiritually dead to the spiritual living. Peter is proclaiming the very same thing we see in Paul, that when Christ rose, we rose with him. In giving life to Jesus, God was giving life to everyone who throughout the ages who are united to Christ. Jesus Christ not only made our salvation possible, he has made it secure. And with the commencement of our relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ, he will forever be a part of us until the day we join him for all eternity. Philippians 1.6 says, Being confident, there's that confident hope, of this very thing that he which hath begun a good work in you will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. Now you might say, well, brother, that's all well and good. But there's still pain. There's still suffering in this world. And this brings me to the third piece then. We are reminded that whatever we deal with in this world, whatever we struggle with, is only temporary. Anyone who has been a Christian for any length of time is no stranger to suffering, I assure you that. Our suffering takes on many forms. Jesus warned us that our lives would be marked by suffering. Our suffering goes and uh, continues all throughout our walk in this world. It could come from others. It could be self-inflicted through our rebellion and sin. Suffering could be allowed by God to teach us something or to reveal to us something. But in every single instance, there is a fundamental truth that rings loud and clear throughout all of it. As Peter put it, the trial of your faith might be found unto praise and honor and glory at the appearing of Jesus Christ. What is he saying? Peter is effectively saying that our suffering should magnify God should glorify God. It should show what a magnificent, benevolent, loving, merciful, and powerful God He is. I'll tell you a story. A young man who was being hazed by a college fraternity was taken to a secluded spot where he was told to hold on to a knot at the end of a rope. And the rope was greased up where he couldn't climb up it. And his fraternity brothers lowered him down into a dark, deep well thinking they would just leave him there for a few minutes and pull him up. He was terrified to see them tie the end of the rope off to a bar across the top of the well, leaving him suspended in midair. This can't be, he thought, as he called out for help, but no one came. As he approached the 15-minute mark, his arms aching unbelievably, and his shoulders feeling as though they were on fire, he started to cry. Finally, after about 25 torturous minutes, able to hang on no longer, he let go, and he fell two inches. 
just as his fraternity brothers had calculated. Isn't that just like us in our times of suffering? Where are you, God? I don't know if I'm going to make it. We cry out to Him. We fret. We blubber. We scream. And finally we let go. And guess what we find? We discover the solid rock. Jesus Christ was right underneath our feet all along. We just had to let go to realize it. And there's a lot of us that have burning shoulders, aching arms right now for no reason. We're trying to hang on through our own efforts, by our own spirituality. We get disgusted with ourselves and worried we're, we're not going to make it if we would just let go of the rope and realize that Jesus, what He had done on the cross of Calvary, we would realize that it's not our puny efforts that will see us through, but rather the power of God. You see, God wants to do His will through us. He tries to teach us this through our trials. He is drawing us closer and closer to Him through the understanding of the power He wields on our behalf and for our betterment, to make us better. We see our temporary suffering as a constructive thing, regardless of how we might feel about it. And Peter reminds us that no matter what we are going through, regardless of how long we may think this go on for, it is still temporary. It will not last forever. Paul tells us in Romans 8.18, For I reckon that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. The suffering that, no matter what level that might be for us, are nothing compared to the glory of God that is revealed through that. His use of the expression this present time is a reminder that there is a time when all of our suffering, suffering will come to an end. And what awaits us beyond that time is glorious, beyond words. More than anything we could possibly imagine. But let me tell you something, as long as there is sin in this world, there will always be suffering. And believers, we should be grieved by the sin we see. We should be grieved by the sin we see all around us. We should be grieved by the sin that we see in our own lives. It should bother us that we should still find ourselves guilty from time to time of offending God through the selfish, fleshly choices that we make. Now we can glory certainly by the, in the truth that our sins are forgiven. We must not, however, cheapen the grace of God by seeing this as a means to gloss over our actions. To minimize the sinfulness in our lives. Of all people, we who have been redeemed and have tasted the grace and mercy of God should understand the significance of the price that was paid in order to bring about that forgiveness. And every time the need arises to apply the grace of God to our lives, we should in our minds picture a suffering Christ on that cross, recognizing what was done in order to bring about that forgiveness. But by the same token, we can rejoice that we don't need to carry the guilt or burden of those sins beyond the foot of the cross. We know that our God has provided a means of healing and knocking down the barriers in our relationship with Him that we continually seem to be throwing up through our sinfulness. 
We can celebrate the fact that when we sincerely repent of our sins, we are washed clean through the shed blood of Jesus and we can stand before God righteous, not of our own doing, not of our own accord, but because Jesus and the sacrifice He has made and His righteousness is imparted upon us. But there's a warning in this as well. Those who cannot call Christ their rock, their redeemer, your suffering in this world is nothing compared to what awaits you. The torment and pain that is to come will never, ever end either. It is far from temporary. It is eternal. Understand something very, very clearly. Seeing someone condemned to an eternity of suffering apart from God is not something that God delights in, nor is it even what He desires. In fact, it is something that breaks his heart. It's easy. It would be an easy thing for him to have it would be to just kind of leave us alone in our condemnation and say, "Well, they made their bed; they're just going to have to lay in it." I made things perfect; they messed it up; they're on their own now. That would be the easy thing for God to do. But instead, He went to immense lengths, tremendous lengths, to remedy. A circumstance, a situation that we created. Not Him, we created. He sent His only begotten Son to die in our place, to carry the burden of our condemnation, the shame of our sin. Rest assured, He does not wish that anyone should end up in hell. Now, there will be people that hear this and might want to argue that then why does he send people to hell? Why doesn't he simply just let everybody into heaven? If it's not his desire, then why should anyone be condemned? It is because of his perfect holiness, his perfect righteousness, his perfect judgment. It demands that every single man, woman, and child should be judged according to perfect judgment. And because of this, he can't simply look the other way. He can't simply look when someone comes before him that is unrighteous, that has sinned. He can't simply look the other way and say, oh well, no big deal. To overlook sin or even bend the rules would make him an imperfect God. He would cease to be God. In which case, he wouldn't be trusted. If he wasn't the one true God, we couldn't trust him. We couldn't believe in him. We couldn't hold true to his promises. Because what's to say he wouldn't change his mind? But our God is perfect, he is holy, he is righteous, and he is unchanging. Amen. We've already spoken about the guarantee of his promise through Jesus Christ, who is our living hope. He, our hope is alive today. In fact, it would make him unqualified to be our judge if he would have taken an attitude like that. But please understand something. Our God is perfect. Our God is a righteous judge and he will judge according to his perfect law. And that law states that sin must be atoned for. And without the atoning sacrifice of Jesus Christ and his presence, our precious shed blood on the altar of God, we have no chance. We have no hope. He's not going to force His will upon you, though. 
He doesn't want you to go to hell, but he's not going to force you to accept what he has already done for us. He pursues us. He chases us. Yeah, absolutely. He tries to get our attention. He keeps giving us opportunities. Tries to get, our, uh, get us to focus on our need for Jesus Christ. He offers himself absolutely. But ultimately, we have to make the decision. We have to embrace the work of the cross. And that is ultimately his desire for us. He offers it through his son, Jesus Christ. He offers us hope through Jesus Christ. But let me ask you this. What are you going to place your hope in in this world? You're going to place your hope in the things that are changing, that are subject to circumstance and, and, and things that happen? Or are you going to place your hope in a hope that is alive, secure, unchanging, and eternal? The choice is yours. A fleeting hope or a living hope. Let's stand as we go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Fathers, we come before your throne. We stand in awe of your goodness. Lord, we look at all that we do to offend you. We look at all that we do that falls, causes us to fall short of, of your expectations of us, Lord. And we, we recognize we're not worthy of anything good. And that yet you extend your love, your grace, your mercy to us day after day after day. Lord, let me pray fervently this morning that if there's anybody here today, anybody that is at the sound of my voice that has placed their hope in the things of this world, let them recognize the futility of that. Let them recognize that there is no true hope, no true future in that. Let them recognize that they can place a, a hope in, in something that is eternal, something that is sure, and have the biblical kind of hope that is a forward-looking expectation as opposed to just kind of a roll of the dice. Lord, let us feel the Spirit burdening our hearts. Let us recognize our need for the Lord Jesus Christ as our Savior, as the Lord of our lives, and as everything that we live for. And Lord, just have your will and way in all those that are here today. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for joining us today. Tune in next time for another Walk in God's Word. Podcasts are available in Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Amazon Music and Audible, Spotify, Stitcher, Pocket Cast, TuneIn, CastBox, Downcast, and BeyondPod. Search for and subscribe to Providence Baptist Church Space-Space Gaston Sermons. Until next time, may God bless you as we await His joyful return. Hi, this is John Friedrich, pastor of Providence Baptist Church. It's my prayer that our time together has helped you grow in your walk with God, or maybe He's even used it to guide you to discover the wonderful gift of salvation. If you're ever in our area, we would love for you to come worship with us. Our address is Providence Baptist Church, 977 Metafield Road, Gaston, South Carolina, 29053. If you'd like to contact us, you can do so through our website at www. 
providencenbcgaston.com or email us at providencenbcgaston at gmail.com. Again, thank you for tuning in and we look forward to you joining us next time as we take a walk in the Word.